Richard Price began his academic life studying philosophy at Oxford University in the late 90s. He went on to complete his PhD with a particular interest in epistemology and metaphysics, but it wasn't his work in the study of knowledge that has come to determine his career path. At least, not exactly. A frustration with the paywalls employed by academic journals that prevent people from accessing and using research led him to found academia.edu, a platform for researchers to open up access to their work. Since its founding in 2008, academia.edu has attracted over 4 million users and hosts over 1.5 million academic papers. His work brought him to the Berkman Center where he sat down with David Weinberger. Academia.edu is a platform for academics to share their research papers. So they create a profile, they upload their papers. We provide quite detailed analytics around the traction of those papers, basically readership metrics, demographic data about your readers and so on. And then you can also follow other people on the site. So I can follow you, for instance, and my newsfeed will be full of papers from people I follow. Is it assumed that um, people who are reading the papers are reading it on your site? Yeah, you can download the papers as well and, and obtain a local copy. But we, when someone uploads a PDF to the site, we convert the PDF to HTML5. Um, and so you can, in fact, read the paper in the browser. It is like, like Twitter. It's a, a follow graph. So um, people following each other. Um, you can also tag your paper with uh, research tags. So, for instance, if you're studying uh, computational linguistics and writing papers in that field, you can tag your paper with computational linguistics, and it'll be, the paper will appear that in the news feeds of everyone following that topic. So the idea is that that gives you extra distribution beyond your, simple, beyond your uh, followers. So we have about 2.2 million users and adding around 5,500 users a day. Uh, we track monthly unique visitors, uh, so people uh, visiting the site, so that figure is around 5 million right now, 5 million monthly uniques. We also track um, how many uh, papers have been uploaded to the site, and that number is about uh, 800,000. How does that break down in the disciplines? The funny thing about the, the academia is it's always been very sort of evenly distributed. So, for instance, in the, in the sciences, the top field is probably in the hard, you know, hard and soft sciences, I guess. You're looking at computer science and um, economics are, are, are pretty big. Uh, physics, biology, chemistry, about the same size. Um, there are su some areas, like I think education is slightly bigger than you might think it w would be, but broadly speaking, the top research areas roughly, roughly on the site correspond with common sense. And also, I mean, what you would think they would be. And funny if the same is true of universities. The top universities represented on the site are basically the, the familiar research brand, the familiar brands of top research universities. And in the humanities, which uh, generally have not been as supportive of, of open access publishing, what are you seeing? Yeah, so the top fields in, in humanities are history, um, anthropology, archaeology, philosophy, classics, um, and political science, depending on whether you consider that humanities. What license are articles published under at your site? We don't... Um, require any transfer of copyright of any kind or have any sort of um, viewpoint on that matter. People treat the site as they would their departmental homepage or their personal website. So they make a they make a judgment call as to what their publisher allows them to do, or if it's a preprint, it's obviously entirely up to them, the copyright's with them. But the site itself um, does not assert any kind of copyright over any of the, any of the papers uploaded. And are you getting papers that are prior to publication? Um, are you getting... So uh, copies 
of papers that have been published in other journals and now are being archived in some sense. Are you an alternative to a peer-reviewed uh, for-pay journal? Um, I think it's really common practice on the site for people to upload draft versions and to just to see, to start to start um, getting the, the, the copy of the paper out there. I mean, I was chatting with an academic yesterday um, at MIT who was saying how um, he posts his papers online before they've been published, and there's a good year before they actually come out in the journals, but in that year they're collecting citations. And I think that's uh, something that academics are increasingly doing, is saying, look, I just it's so important for me to collect citations and readership metrics, and I just it just makes sense to share it earlier and earlier. But to your other question about um, are we an alternative, I think not yet. People, the aspiration is always to... Um, collect that journal title. The journal title reigns supreme um, and has done historically as with regard to what cements an academic's reputation and what builds it. So I think you're all, you know, historically people have always chased that that venue of publication. I think it's starting to change. Um, I think that additional repu reputation metrics are coming onto the scene. And I think eventually you will see academics saying, look, I'm not going to publish in journals any longer. I think the costs that way that the, the benefits, and I think there's a whole uh, series of other reputation metrics I'm getting from other sources. Um, so I do have a thesis that what the point you mentioned is on the horizon, but it, we're not there yet. How do you see the standing of the growing field of open access journals where uh, they're online, uh, so publication can be quite fast instead of this year or sometimes two-year turnaround, which is, seems crazier and crazier in the Internet age? Um, and uh, they're peer-reviewed, many of these open access journals. Yeah. Um, how do you see your, your standing against yeah. uh, with them? Um, I, I, I think that they're probably, you know, because they have this cumbersome peer review process um, and they have this concept of rejection, uh, so you might have to submit your papers to multiple journals before they get out. I, I think the average time lag is to, to, between getting your paper out and it being published, not necessarily in that journal, but some journal, you know, your second or third choice, is still often in the you know 12-month range. Um, and I, I think that more generally, in the future, there won't be any costs around the sharing of research. Right, historically, it's been a, the attacks on access. Readers have had to pay a fortune, like $35 an article, or if you're a university, a huge site license subscription. Um, now we're moving to an author pays model where, again, the fees are absolutely gigantic. The author pays model charges authors between $1,000 and $3,000 per article, whereas if you look at information networks like Facebook and Twitter, um, where... Um, again, it's free to submit content and you know, it's free to review content and so on. Uh, they, they don't charge anything for digital content. I think we're moving towards a world where uh, people won't be spending money on sharing their research content. They won't be spending money on consuming their research content. The peer review, as it always has been, will be done for free. The sharing will be done for free. And the networks that support that process will be sufficiently low cost and implemented by technology uh, that that you'll be able to make money, much like Facebook and Twitter do, without charging the user. That's broadly my thesis. And so I, th I think the open access journals will fall by the wayside as much as closed access journals. And I think the journal will become a, a thing of the past. So let's, let's hypothesize that we're there, one way or another. Yeah. Um, and so we're in an environment where peer review happens after publication, so to speak. Yeah. That gets posted, and then there's a set of social tools, evaluative right. tools, yeah. um, some of which you, you are already providing. Um, 
I guess the first question is how how well that system is going to work. Yeah. Because we know that there are models, um, and not necessarily for academic work, where uh, there's karma, uh, which yeah. is reputation, and yeah. um, some quantification of, of reputation as the site envisions it, which is fueled by upvotes or downvotes or yeah. comment votes or uh, various um, systems, uh, how many times uh, something is cited or or it's yeah. read. For many sites, we know that it works mm. because what gets floated up to the top is interesting, and we know that it's interesting because we, not just we as individuals, uh, find it interesting, but because the site does really, really well. Yeah. So Reddit is a really good sure. example of this. Um, but there are many, many others, Slashdot and the like. Yeah. In the case of academic work, um, you, it would seem, uh, an hypothesis you can shoot down, it would seem that you... You want to make sure that what is floating to the top is not necessarily the most popular yeah. or the most easily digested yeah. or the most controversial or yeah. the most you know, um, uh, exaggerated in its claims. You want it to be the most solid. Re- yeah. um, how do you do point. that, and how do you know that you're doing it well? So I think one of the main problems with the current peer review system is that you wait a long time, let's say 12 months, um, and at the end of that 12-month period, you get opinions from just two, two academics. And these academics may may or may not be experts in the field. They may um, be just in a bad mood when writing the review. Um, but I mean, ultimately, it's a very small uh, number of, of opinions that, was, that are being surfaced by that system. And the research community that they're in may be, let's say it's the machine learning community, there may well be 10,000 or 25,000 people in the world in that field. And, you know, you ask any two different people in that community, you're going to get different opinions. So I think ultimately the the number of opinions that the peer review system is currently surfacing is not a statistically significant number. And that's the core problem. Apart from the fact that it takes a long, long time, the actual result of it is not very high quality. It also tends to be conservative. That is, the people who are assigned the, the peer to be peer reviewers tend to be people who already have standing and thus are already right in the mainstream. They are the mainstream of the discipline. Yeah. And it doesn't scale. Yeah. You can't get the, the volume of work that there is in the world. just simply cannot pass through peer review. Um, my, my dream and vision for peer review and the future peer reviewers is the idea of being able to surface opinions from the entire scientific community and in real time. So you get that kind of robustness that comes from scale and it doesn't get the kind of biases that can slip in when you're just asking two people what they think. Um, but you also get the speed. And I think the way to achieve speed, I mean, we all know why peer review takes a long time. It's not because reading a paper takes a long time. It's because... Um, it's number 150 on an academic's list of priorities. It's just not a high-priority thing to do. So when the editor says, look, you know, would you do this, and one f- the social obligation kicks in and you say yes, um, you, you know, you agree to do it, but they say, well, hand the review back in three months and maybe you hand it back in four months. <laughs> I've been there and I, I peer-reviewed articles and I know that feeling. Um, I think that what we need is to, a different way of thinking about peer review where if you're a mathematician and you see a paper with a theorem in that you can refute. We, I think we need a system where you're racing to get your refutation out by 6 p.m. today because you will collect the glory associated with that refutation and it will contribute to your, to your reputation. So if, uh, the an, an analog would be if you're at a conference and there's this paper that someone's presented and you have a great question to ask. You know, there's, you're, sort of off, you know you're bursting to ask the question before anyone else because you, you, know, you don't want to be preempted you want to get your thoughts out and your insight out there and collect the glory I, I would like to see that happening 
um, in asynchronously, I guess, not just in the real-time co context of a conference, but asynchronously on the web um, with reputation attached. That's contrary to the self-image that many academics and researchers have, which is, uh, no, the, the behavior in which you're bursting to ask the question and you're, you're powering your way through the other people who are also bursting is a not a good example. It's a bad example. And what we really want, according to this ideal, is academics, researchers who have the leisure to think and to consider and to take their ego and their career ambitions out, which of course never happens, but that's the, the image. Um, and so having a system that gives priority to the people who can write uh, quickly and formulate dramatically so their stuff gets read um, will do to research what blogging has done to the news. Well, yeah, it's an interesting thing. So we, I say this as a blogger, by the way. Yeah, so. it, it, no, it brings up another point that I forgot to another drawback of the current peer review system that I forgot to mention, which is that the current peer review system is very static. Two opinions are delivered on this paper, and those opinions that is a stamp of um, a reputation attached to the paper, and it never changes, never gets upgraded or downgraded, um, and so it doesn't. That peer review system doesn't uh, reflect the changing opinion and sentiment that the research community has towards a paper. And to some degree, that changing opinion is reflected in citation counts and so on. But, um, you know, e even those are a little bit crude. So I, I think that one way of dealing with the point you mentioned is um, to have a system that that encourages comments throughout the life cycle of a paper, and you know, even papers that are 50 years old. Um, I think another point you mentioned, which is the um, would the aggressive zealots and perhaps even the uninformed zealots rise to the top and generally how do we distinguish how do we encourage quality comments how do we distinguish between popularity and impact or you know just the most um most eager comments versus the most impactful ones and i think that an opinion a guideline i often um take when i think about this question is looking at how google approached that for links with their page rank algorithm um, there, that it was critical to distinguish between number of in inbound links and 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 obviously the sort of quality of, of a site, and they used that with a recursive algorithm, which looks at the at the uh, quality of the pages that were doing the linking. Themselves. Yeah, and I think we'd have to do that. So, and I actually think it's going to be a lot of different things. It'll be people sharing uh, recommendations of papers, people commenting on papers, people um, retweeting papers, people. I, I, I more or less think that. Um, you know, uh, just readership metrics around papers. I think every dimension of interaction with a paper, whether it's a commenting a paper or sharing it or citing it or just reading it, um, can be the foundation of a reputation metric. And I think with respect to each dimension, you probably want to make that recursive. So you say, okay, I'm not just interested in how many view count, how many how many readers there were for the paper, but I want to weight that metric with some knowledge about who read it. So uh, um, earlier on, you were sort of juxtaposing the two peer reviewers. Occasionally, it's frequently, it's, I think it's a little more than two, but it doesn't matter. You know, it's two to four. Two to four, yeah. If you're lucky, you get four. <laughs> right. And you're, you're uh, contrasting that with having the um, opinion of the entire community, say yeah. the scientific community. How do you determine what the scientific, who's in the scientific community and thus who has either a say or who has more of a say in terms of karma and reputation. I mean, it's actually funny if one of the drawbacks of the current citation count system, which is that although anyone can cite a paper, um, clearly some citations are more valuable than others. If, if you're a physics 
professor and Stephen Hawking cites your paper, that's just a much bigger deal than if an unknown you know, master student in physics cites your paper. And yet right now, you know, it turns out that the way Google Scholar represents citation counts is just a raw count of how many inbound citations, and it doesn't draw those distinctions. I, you know, I think that we do need to um, draw those distinctions, and I think the recursiveness is one way of doing it. So I suppose I would deal with that point by saying, well, anyone, anyone should be able to comment on a paper, whether that in the in the research field or not. There needs to be voting on comments. There needs to be a way to uh, say a comment is really good. So it is a challenge. I think the key. The key challenge is attaching reputation to commenting. If you talk to a lot of scientists and you say, why do you not comment on papers online? Why do you not avail yourself of this software? They'll say, look, I just don't see the point. You know, their reputation is completely disconnected from the brilliant insights that they could share on a paper. And we need to connect those insights with their reputation. Insofar as they're off the web, then they're... Um, what they have is a credentialed reputation or a reputation that's built up through much more conventional means, yeah. whereas the web so far, the commenting sites, sites that have successfully implement comments um, and that give some sense of, that keep some sense of reputation are basing it entirely upon the perceived quality of the, of the behavior within the web space. Yeah. Right. So and the, I put it this very long way of saying at Slashdot or Wikipedia or Reddit, yeah. um, the fact that you are a credentialed whatever counts often for nothing and yeah. frequently negatively. Right. Um, because why would you bring that up? It's the quality of your argument as opposed to building up your reputation within the, yeah. the web itself. I think there's an exception there with Twitter. Like, I mean, every as you say, every platform has its own sort of reputation metrics and you know, rep Stack Overflow has, has reputation and... YouTube has view counts and Twitter has followers and, and retweets. And I think, you know, Twitter to some degree does model the real world. Oprah Winfrey has a lot of followers. Yeah, but, you know. but in part because it's not a conversational space, especially if you are in the multi-million follower, you can't yeah. be commenting. Right. People don't expect you to be replying to their, you know, I love you, Justin, is not going to get a comment back from Justin Bieber, and you don't expect it to. Yeah. So it, it models the real world, but only at the cost of being genuinely conversational. There, there is an element of kind of homegrown reputations on these sites too, as you, as you point out, like GitHub, for instance, has a particular set of rep reputation metrics, which are followers and, and, and forks, you know, how often your code is forked, and, um, you know, and, and, so does, and so does Reddit. Um, currently, for the past, you know, uh, since the 1950s, there's been an impact factor which measures the supposed right. heft of a journal. Yeah. It's notoriously, or at least widely supposed to be somewhat corrupt yeah. um, or has been corrupted yeah. by gaming the system. It it's, runs two years behind. It's a running average of two years. So it's the, yeah. um, And it is only at the journal level. It's not at the individual article level. So there are yeah. well-known problems with it. Um, but it has the advantage of being a standard. So, you know, everybody uses it. Everybody knows about it. There's only one of them. Yeah. Do you see a similar sort of um, uh, standard emerging from that's based upon more realistic, much uh, comments and reviews, et cetera, at scale um, that uh, will emerge and people will be able to point to in the way that they point to and rely upon the impact factor. I do I do see a family of reputation metrics emerging. Um, I don't know how big it's going to get. So right now we're seeing things like inbound citation counts and academics taking those really seriously. We're seeing readership metrics increasingly being taken seriously. We're seeing instead of article level 
metrics. We're also seeing sort of person level metrics. For instance, how many followers you have is is something that we, you know, people care about in academia.edu, for instance. I think as more and more scientific activity becomes native to the web as opposed to performed offline and sort of imported online, I think you will see more and more uh, reputation metrics emerging as commenting becomes native to the web and, sh you know, um, instead of sharing, recommending papers to your colleagues over lunch, if you're recommending papers online, suddenly you can figure out what are the most recommended papers. That becomes a n recommend recommending papers becomes a native web web activity, which is uh, is the basis of a, a reputation metric. So I think that um, I think there there will be a handful. I mean, I, I'm not sure. It's I think it's too early to say. You know, what will be the dominant ones? I think any any time the web gets its hands or something, it becomes really hard to predict what sorts of activities will emerge as dominant. For instance, let's take Twitter. People thought of Twitter as really dumb initially, and they thought retweeting was kind of strange, and now it's quite a dominant um, activity, and it's been um, replicated on Pinterest with repinning, and Quora with reblogging, and Tumblr with reblogging, and there's re-everything. Re but you, you know, one couldn't have predicted that would become a, uh, a really popular way of interacting with content. So I, I have a very open mind, honestly. So, so this is a similar sort of question, but not about the metric, but rather about what constitutes the canon. Because one of the, I'll say it's a benefit of the scarcity that paper imposed upon us, was that there was, there were so few things published compared to the number of things that could be published, that we were able to identify some works as canonical within a field. And everybody knew what they were. Um, which simply, uh, so this has the, has the advantage of simplifying things, right? uh, even though you pay an enormous cost at removing from attention a wide range of materials that might be highly valuable in a wide variety of ways. So here we have now have an environment um, on the web and within academia.edu in which there's lots and lots of uh, papers heading towards a million papers right, um, that are contending. Do we get back to at any point? Are we heading towards a time when there isn't a canon, when it's not clear what it is if you're going to be a competent chemist, competent physicist, competent philosopher? Um, it's not clear what it is you need to read? Is the canon simply an artifact of the scarcity that paper imposes? I mean, when it comes to the canon and what is an appropriate way of thinking about that canon, I think it's a question of sort of, you know, media formats like what is an, what what are appropriate um, contributions to the canon, and then there's a second question of quantity, like how big can it get? Um, I, I mean, I do think there needs to be an expansion on the format question. I think that you know, right now, scientists are producing more and more data sets, which are just you know really really important pieces of the aspects of the scientific output, but they generally, by and large, you know, don't share them. And they don't share them because there aren't the reputation metrics to make that worthwhile, worth their time. So if it takes, it takes quite a long time to prepare a data set for public consumption. It also, there are some costs in terms of giving away some of your secrets. So there need to be, just like there is with publishing a paper, um, there's, there's time involved and there's obviously an intelligence cost in giving away some of the crown jewels of your research project. Although, if, if, if one of the cornerstones of science is that other scientists can look at your work and... and either repeat the experiment or examine the data to make sure that you were drawing the right conclusions, you would think that including your data set would be fundamental yeah. now that we can. I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think it's got to be fundamental. I think it's absolutely essential. We need, the, we need to build reputation metrics that really encourage sharing of code, data sets, other multimedia like video, 
And I think actually peer reviews, I mean, comments on papers, I think, is, is one aspect, one way of you, in which you can contribute to the canon of knowledge and, and that should be incentivized with the right kind of reputation metrics. Um, so I think that what the way to deal with quantity, a bit like, for instance, the way the web dealt with quantity, is that there was suddenly this massive problem about so many websites out there. And, you know, Yahoo tried to deal with it with editors of, of various directories, and then Google came along and says, no, no, that's not the way to do it. To, to properly deal with this problem at scale, you need a, a scalable algorithm. Um, and, and then that was, say, in 1998 that they launched. And then in the mid-2000s, uh, Facebook and the social web was born. And there they were taking a different solution to the kind of information scale problem. They were saying, okay, well, Google's okay, but like, what I want to know what my friends are reading. That's really interesting material, and that's another layer of peer review that can help me navigate the vast quantities out there. So I think that I actually see Google and, and, and Facebook um, as both peer review engines. They're both ways of helping you discover content amidst a sea of information. Um, and I think in the scientific realm, one way of dealing with a, a massive increase in research material is to say, well, I follow this person's opinion, I follow this person's opinion, um, and I'm going to be sensitive to what they recommend. Isn't that... So the complaint... The criticism of Facebook and Google uh, as well but is that um, they reinforce, uh, they keep you within your echo chamber, they reinforce uh, the prejudices, inevitable prejudices of your friends, the very things that you like them for, the shared value system, the shared tastes, that these are in fact limitations. And it's one thing when you're talking about uh, finding a new, new band to listen to, um, but it's another when you're talking about, say, science or the humanities for that matter, doesn't this type of social peer review um, run the risk of actually closing us off to works that we should be reading? Whatever that should mean. There's a lot packed into that should, I think. So, I mean, let's let's also, we can consider it from the perspective of, say, a grant committee, the NIH. So one criticism of, of the NIH is that it's very conservative. Um, it has all these applications coming in. And it likes to bet on projects that have a relatively high chance of success. And so if you have this sort of outlier, quite risky project that seems to have no traction around it, no published papers, no material, you know, there's no there's, there are simply not enough validation signals around those kinds of projects for them to bet on them. And so they just get not they don't get funded. If there was a bit more validation online, you can see, well, at least there's a, some um, positive sentiment towards this project. You know, it's gone from zero to non-zero. And it can that could perhaps raise the chances of that sort of project getting getting funded. So I think I think that I guess to tie it back to your question, I think you know, there probably is some validity in not staying in um, you know just the confines of people that you've always known and trusted. But um, it, this conversation gets stuck on uh, this issue gets stuck between um, two poles in a system in which people are are the recommenders. They're passing around links. Um, people tend to pass around links that they think are interesting, that is, that are outside of what you normally would see. So if I'm going to send, I'm send an email, because I'm an old guy, I use email. So if I'm going to send email to people saying, oh, you got to see this link, it's one that I think they haven't come across, and it's an outlier. It's that um, A recommendation system tends to favor the outliers, which is great because then things that were outside of the cocoon that maybe have less validation, but some get noticed. Um, but on the other hand, um, 
it means that there isn't a canon, there's no common agreement, there's, you know, so either way you look at it, somebody's going to object to it. No system is perfect. Well, when I think about the future of sort of scientific communication, I often think, okay, how has the web, you know, the general consumer web, generic consumer web solved that problem? Um, and I think that the sharing event and the peer review element are actually the same, you know, so it's really, instead of it being post-publication peer review, you know, I think it's more of a case of sort of during, during you know, uh, during the sh peer review and sharing it sort of simultaneously. And of course, the result is that the, you know, there there isn't really a, a canon any longer. What's the uh, what's the your business model? As scientific activity moves online, there'll be room for a lot of different kinds of business models that more or less mirror the variety that you see on the web. There'll be advertising models like Facebook and Twitter and Google, um, where all the server costs and engineering costs are supported by advertising. There'll be freemium models that where there's a sort of free portion of the site and a premium portion of the site, so-called freemium. In academia's case, we are excited about building a sort of analog to Twitter's trending topics algorithm, but for trending papers. We would like to be able to build an algorithm based around which papers are being highly consumed. And going back to this point earlier about the recursiveness, consumed by influential people. So you can you can say, well, in the last seven days, um, what were the most highly read papers in Alzheimer's research or in Parkinson's research? And if you're a, um, a pharmaceutical company deplying making capital allocation decisions in Alzheimer's research and you're sensitive to the peer-reviewed literature, Previously, the only peer-reviewed signal you've had access to has been the journal titles, journal titles attached to papers. And, I, and what we would like to be able to do is uh, marshal a scientific activity on, online in such a way that we can contribute another peer-review signal and sell th those peer-review signals to, um, to pharmaceutical companies, R&D companies, in the form of a sort of trending papers dashboard that would help them understand for all their areas they're allocating capital in, which are some... And it actually comes back to this point about getting outside your cocoon. You see, I mean, a lot of the ways they think about allocation of capital is partly anecdotal. What do I think is trending right now? What do I think the hot areas of research are uh, as, a, as a pharmaceutical scientist? Or what do the journals think the promising areas of, of research are? And we would like to add in another source of um, insights around that purely based on consumption activity consumption sharing how people or another way of interaction activity how are people interacting with the literature of our hope and dream is to build a better peer review system and then sell the fruits of that peer review system to people who deploy capital no no but uh, thank you but that seems would seem to indicate that in the future you're going to be more invested in the sciences than in the humanities because you're not going to sell a lot of that trending information to philosophers. <laughs> yeah, for that's example. very true. I mean, I do think that, um, you know, one of the reasons that academia has um, kind of grown in this very sort of even way across all the dis disciplines is that there is a lot of interdisciplinary work in, in research. And I think, you know, although the money will come almost certainly from the more hard science aspects and applied sciences aspects of the site, um, I think, you know, it's, it's critical to have a site that supports all of research. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Richard Price is the CEO of Academia.edu, which you can find out more about at, well, Academia.edu, or on our blog, blogs.law.harvard.edu slash Media Berkman. 
This episode of Radio Berkman was produced by David Weinberger and myself, Daniel Dennis-Jones, from the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 